Well, for those of you who don't understand why I made all the reference to my job title, it's because a little over a month ago, my family and I were still living in West Africa, and now we're here. Before we ever left West Africa, we had already packed up our home that we had lived in for several years, and we had started living with some teammates. Now, I don't know if you've ever had the joyful experience of living in someone else's home, but there's an element of that, no matter how welcoming that person might be, that other family might be, there's just a sense where you're just, you're not comfortable. You know? You're just not comfortable. I mean, it doesn't matter how nice they are, how welcoming they are. You didn't put those things in that cabinet. In fact, when you want something, you don't know what cabinet to look in. You go into the bathroom and you want to find something and you feel a little awkward just opening up all the drawers and looking all around because it's not yours. You know what's in there. You don't feel at ease. Familiarity is a funny thing. As we are students of the Word of God, we want to become familiar with the Word of God. We, 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 we want to become, uh, we want to get to the place where as we come to different books of the Bible, they're like old friends. We don't, we don't want them to be like those scary cabinets in the bathroom of our friend's house that we're afraid to open. You know, oh, I don't know what's going on there. Ooh, shut that thing. We want them to become friends. We want to be familiar with them. But there's also a danger with familiarity, with comfort. I recognized that as we packed up our house. When we moved into that house, there were all these little quirks about the house, you know, and I was like, oh, I'm going to fix that. No, I'm going to fix that. I'm going to fix that. Well, several years later, as we're packing up to leave the house, guess what? That door I was going to fix, yeah, you still have to kind of jiggle the handle and bang it with your hip and lift up, and it opens, you know? And I never fixed it, partly because I just became familiar with that routine. It became normal and comfortable to me, so the door's been broke forever and I just never even noticed it. The same thing can happen with passages of Scripture like this. Proverbs 3, 5. You've heard that passage over and over and over again and it can become so familiar and we can become so comfortable with us that we fail to see what's right there in front of us. And so this morning what I want to do is I just want to draw our attention to this extraordinary demand that's made here in the book of Proverbs. So let's look at it together. Hopefully you're there in your Bibles already. Proverbs chapter 3. We're going to focus in on verse 5 and then we'll, we'll, after we look at it a little bit, we'll come back and we'll catch some of the context. Proverbs 3, 5. I probably don't even need to read it. You probably, most of you have it memorized, right? Trust in the Lord with all your hearts and do not lean on your own understanding. Trust. We all trust. We came into this world trusting. Before you knew what trust was, you were trusting. When you were born as a child, you had to trust someone. You were incapable of taking care of yourself. All of us trust. If you didn't trust anyone today, you wouldn't be here. If you trusted no one or nothing, you would not have gotten behind the wheel of a car. Some of you might even have let your children drive, which is even scarier. But you would not have gotten in behind the wheel of a car that you didn't make and drive that car down a road, and when you get here to Corinth Road, you get to a place where the only thing separating you and oncoming traffic are two little yellow lines that say, don't come over here. That takes trust. You go out to eat, you don't know who made that food. 
Sometimes you eat it and you're reminded you don't know who ate that, who made that food. But you're trusting. You worked this week, at least some of you worked this week, and you probably didn't get paid this week, or you're gonna work next week and you're not gonna get paid right away, and what are you doing? You're working and you're trusting that when payday comes, your boss isn't gonna be like, well, you know, money. Who really needs it? No, you're trusting that you're working and then they're going to pay you when the time comes. The world functions on trust. And even in this day and time when there's a a portion of the world that wants to tell us that we can kind of erase trust from our understanding and we can live with this this 100% scientific certainty, right? You can get to this place in your life where you don't need to trust anything. Everything can be proven. Well, even that in of itself is a huge assumption and takes a lot of trust to get there when i think about trust i think there are two key things and they come out in this verse two key things we think about trust one is the quantity the quantity how much am i being asked to trust and the second is the object of that trust you with me anybody with me okay good quantity and the object if I asked you who you would trust with 50 cents, the list is probably pretty long, right? I mean, if I said, give somebody 50 cents and expect that tomorrow they're going to come back and give you that 50 cents, the list is probably pretty long. Now, you might not call that trust. You might call it, you know, risk-taking. I don't know. You know, you're willing to risk 50 cents, but you get what I'm saying. You'd trust a lot of people with 50 cents. What about $500? That list shrink a little bit? The quantity, the amount that we're asked to trust, impacts how difficult it is to trust. People that I might trust with a pet, I'm not going to trust with my children. Now for some of you it might be reversed. People that you trust with your children, you might not trust with your pets, but we'll leave that for another discussion. So when we look at Proverbs chapter 3 verse 5, it says, trust in the Lord with what? With all, that's the first little word that we come to, all. All gives us our reference of of quantity, right? If it's all of something, it's the totality of something. So all isn't just an amount though, it's also exclusivity, right? So when that pimple-faced boy is sitting there in the restaurant, googly-eyed, staring into the eyes of the girl across the table, and he says to her, baby, I love you with all my heart. He's not just talking about the quantity of his love, but he's saying, all of my heart is exclusively what? Yours. It's for you. So we we look here at Proverbs, and this is what the demand tells us. It says to trust in the Lord with All, absolutely all. So it's the total amount and it's exclusively on this one thing. There's no hedging our bets here. There's no, okay, well I'll trust here and I'll trust a little over there too. No, it's all, completely. And notice what it is that we're trusting all. It doesn't say money. It doesn't say time. What does it say? Our heart. Now that's an interesting thing because probably the illustration that I just used does not help in understanding what is meant by heart there. When we think of heart, I don't know, we think Valentine's Day, we think mushy stuff, emotions, right? That's not the idea of heart here. 
Heart in the Old Testament, heart as in this context, which is, as we'll see in a little bit, a father giving instruction to his son back in the Old Testament times of Israel, he would not have understood gushy-mushy emotions. The other way that we think of heart in our day and time more and more is we think of it as dreams, right? You follow your heart. hope my heart never actually leaves me, but whatever that means, I'm going to follow that thing, you know? That's not what we're talking about. Back in Old Testament times, they hadn't divided the person up quite like we have, where you have mind, and you have heart, and you have soul, and all this kind of stuff. The heart was, as Alistair Begg has put it, the causal core of the individual. It was the governing center. If we want to know what heart meant in Proverbs, just look over at Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. Familiar with that verse? The instruction there, the command there, is keep your heart with all vigilance. Why? For from it flows the springs of life. So get that, get that picture in your mind right now. There's streams flowing out, and where are they fr- flowing from? My heart. All the streams of my life, this image in Proverbs chapter 4 is that they're flowing from my heart. So the heart is the core of who I am. It's the core of my will, of my desires, of my intellect. It's the core of who I am. It's what makes me who I am. Now, what did it say again? Trust in the Lord with all. Absolutely, total, and exclusively the causal core of who I am. Now that's extreme. That is absolutely extreme. There is no way we can look at this demand that's being, that's being given here and say, really what the Father is asking is that God be in His Son's life. He just wants to make sure that His Son spends enough time in the temple on occasion. No, that's not it. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, the causal core of who you are. The idea is that this Son's world would evolve around God. That every decision, every stream that flows out of His Son's heart would be affected by this absolute and total trust in the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but for me that's pretty extreme. It's one thing to say, trust me with the amount of money. Trust me with some of your time. Trust me with your children. Trust me with your abilities. Trust me with your talents. But if somebody comes to me and says, I want you to trust me with the very essence of who you are, and you can't trust anything else or anyone else, it's me and me alone, that's intense. And that's exactly what the demand, the command here is. To trust 100% exclusively in the Lord. Right? Because that's the object. We kind of passed over that part. But those were the two things we talked about. The quantity, so the quantity can't get higher. It's all exclusively, completely, the causal core of who I am. That's what's being asked. Now we got to ask about the object. Because if you're going to ask me to trust at that level, and I'm not going to diminish that, because that's part of what I think we do with this verse. What God really wants, He just wants to be first in my life. No. He wants to be the center of your life. He wants me to trust Him with Sundays. No. He wants me to tithe to Him 10%. No, He wants you to trust Him with all of your finances. The core... 
Now, if that level of trust is being demanded, then the object becomes extremely important. So we come back to this simple trust in the Lord. Now, in order to understand the way this would have been hurt, the way this Jewish boy would have heard it, we need to go back and we need to catch our context now. So, let your eyes go back up to, to verse 1 of chapter 3. And we see there what I've been referring to. My son, don't freak out or anything, this doesn't exclude daughters and it doesn't exclude adults. It's just speaking to us of the context. Best we understand this would have been used, father-son instruction, or have been used for a group of boys that were together. And fathers in the community would have been giving this instruction to these boys. But these teachings apply all the same. My son, do not forget my teachings, but let your heart keep my commandments. Now we have two things there, teachings and commandments. Now if we just take those two words by themselves, in the mind of this Jewish boy, it would have run straight to the law of God. The teachings, the commandments, that's the law of God, that's the Torah, it's what God has handed down, it's what He's given to us, and that's where His mind would immediately run. But there's a clue here for us, in the English, that helps us to know it's something more than that. And it's that little possessive pronoun, my teachings, my commandments. And this clues us in a little bit on what wisdom is, because wisdom was more than just the moral standards given in the law. Wisdom was the application of that law. This father has taken the law of God, all of his teachings, all of his commandments would have been rooted in the law of God, but he's taken that law and he's explaining it to his children and he's saying this is what it looks like to live this stuff out in the circumstances of everyday life. Okay? You with me? So he's saying, what about that? One, don't forget, which is the idea of forsake. Forgetting is the first step in forsaking. Don't forsake. Don't forget these things. Don't forget my teachings. But instead of forgetting, what is he to do? But let your heart... Now that's interesting. Here again, we've got this heart thing going on. Right? We already, we are already with heart. Here it is in verse 1. Heart. But let your heart keep... My commands. Now, the idea there of keeping, I think, is really the idea of observing. It's not like guarding away, locking away in a dungeon or something. It's the idea of of obeying. From your heart, remember the heart, the causal core of who I am, I want you to keep my commandments. So, this this is not behavior modification here. The Father's not just saying, I want a well behaved child, be good. What he wants is for obedience to come from the heart to these commandments. So let's keep going. Verse 2 tells us some benefits of that. For length of days, verse 2 says, and years of life and peace they will add to you. Now again, we get to these, these things in Proverbs. This is where it's easy to just pump in our own thoughts of what that means. But we have to leave our mind in the book of Proverbs and let it tell us what that means. Now, Maybe when you hear that, your mind connects with Deuteronomy 5.16, the fifth commandment. That was given in the law, right? That children obey their parents. That's the commandment. And what's the promise? This is almost the exact promise that's given. Now, is that to say that if I obey my mom and dad today, like I just added on a year to my life? I was good for an hour. Does that give me a day? Does it give me like five minutes? How much more, how much longer will my life be? 
That's not the idea at all. The idea isn't so much quantity as quality. An extended life of misery and bitterness without peace is not a blessing. It's torture. But an extended life full of peace lived in wisdom, days spent that way, that's a true blessing. So I think what the Father has in mind isn't so much a length of days as in number or hours, but really living those days. We've all had that happen to us. We might not want to admit it today, but we've had days where we go, wow, I just kind of blew that one. There will be less of those. If you keep my commandments, if you guard my teachings, you're going to have peace in life. Then we come to verse 3. And this is so key. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Now our eyes just kind of run right past let not steadfast love and faithfulness. We just kind of right past that. We don't even really talk that way. But in the mind of this father, and in the mind of this son, the moment they hear steadfast love and faithfulness, I guarantee you their mind is going to go one place. And that's to God. To the covenant-keeping God of Israel. Why is that? Because it was these very attributes with which God had revealed Himself over and over and over again to Israel. In the Old Testament, this, this description of steadfast love and faithfulness is used more of God than of anyone else. Now, I'm not saying that what the Father is saying is don't let God's steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. No, He's talking about character that should be in the Son, but... There's no way in the mind of a Jew that you could detach that from the covenant faithfulness of God. It would be like saying to a New Testament believer, you need to have grace in your life. Well, the moment I think about the fact of the need to be a gracious person, where does my mind go? It ought to go to Jesus. And it ought to go to the cross. Because that's the greatest display of grace. And it's not that you're saying that I need to be careful that the grace of God forsake me. No, I need to have grace in my life. But in my mind, those things are inseparable. Why was it inseparable for them? Well, without, without taking a ton of time, in the history of Israel, one of the pivotal points in their history was the moment they arrive at Mount Sinai. And they were there for a long time. At least in the book of Exodus, they're there for a long time. They show up at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. Exodus 34, they're still there. Now some of that is the giving of the law, and there's chapters of that. But a lot happened there at that mountain. God tells Moses to prepare the people, cleanse them. They're cleansed. They set up a kind of a, a border around the mountain because they can't touch it lest they die. God begins to communicate His covenant to the people. The people hear some of it. They agree to keep it. And then they say, this is freaking us out. We don't want to hear this. Moses, you go up. You tell us what He says. We'll obey. So Moses goes up. And while he's up there, what do the people of Israel do? They break the very law that they've just agreed to keep. And they create a golden calf 
And so God says to Moses, you need to go down there. So Moses goes down, and he does literally what Israel is doing in their actions. He takes the two tablets with the law written on them that God has given them, and he smashes them on the ground, and whether he intended it to be or not, but it is a perfect portrayal of what Israel is doing. Then there's judgment, then Moses intercedes in the tent of meeting for them, and pleads for them, and then God calls Moses back up the mountain to give him the law again. But God says this in Exodus 33, as he's dealing with Moses, he says, look, this is a stubborn people. And I'm not going to send my presence with them, because I'm afraid I'll consume them. So you go on, Moses. You go on, you lead the people, I'll send my angel before you, I'll give you the land. So God essentially says, I'll fulfill my promises, but I'm not going. You know what Moses says? (laughs) No way. God, if you're not going, don't make us leave this place. It is your presence that makes us unique among the nations. Do not send us from this place if you won't go. Now this is Moses who has seen a burning bush. This is Moses who has spoken with God and heard an audible voice. This is Moses who walked up on the mountain that's shaking and there's thunder and there's fire and all this. This is Moses who's seen the plagues. Moses who's seen the parting of the Red Sea. And this Moses at the end of Exodus 33, you know what he wants? Show me your glory. He's addicted. He can't get enough. God, show me your glory. And so, we're building to this. You're like, what in the world does this have to do with Proverbs 3? Well, watch. Exodus 34, verse 6. This is what God says. God says to Moses, what? You can't see my face because it'll kill you. It's that awesome. You'll die, Moses. You can't behold my glory like that. But here's what I'll do. I'll take you. I'll put you in the cleft of a rock. I'm going to put my hand over you. And I will let you just see the back part of my glory. Because that's all your physical body can handle. So Exodus 34, verse 6. The back part of that glory is passing before Moses. A glory that would make his physical face shine. And this is what God declares. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in what? Steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love and faithfulness. Over and over again, God declares himself, I am a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. This father is telling his son, steadfast love and faithfulness need to be in you. Why? Because they are in your God. They need to characterize you because they characterize your God. And you haven't just heard that, you've experienced that. Our people have experienced that. Because God has been faithful to His covenant despite our faithlessness. They need to characterize you. They need to be heart motivations. Steadfast love and faithfulness aren't actions, they're motivators to action. Steadfast love and faithfulness, don't let them forsake you, bind them around your neck, and here we have it again, write them on the tablet of your heart. You see, we're back to heart again. People who read the Old Testament or want to say of the Old Testament, it was just a bunch of laws, a bunch of conformity to a bunch of standards, they obviously have not read the book of Proverbs. 
Where is this teaching? Where is it targeted? The heart, the heart, the heart. These things ought to be in you, son. Steadfast love and faithfulness ought to motivate your life because we've seen and experienced and known that that characterizes our God. It's who He's revealed Himself to be. So now all that's marinating in His mind. And there's this other benefit, verse 4. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. I think again here, the ideas of grace and of good understanding is the way it would maybe literally be translated. It gives the idea of a good reputation. Others will recognize the competence and character and wise living of this young man if he's faithful to obey his father's teaching. We see this even in our day and time when people do not agree with the certain things we might believe or hold to about the Word of God, hopefully in the place that you work, your boss knows that if he gives you a task to do, you're going to do it. And there's a certain level of respect that comes because your boss knows when he gives you a task, you're going to do it and you're going to perform it to the best of your ability and if at all possible, you're going to get it done on time. And if you can, you're going to try and exceed his expectations, not to earn his favor, but because your God is a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. And you're motivated by that. And it earns a certain reputation. Even where we lived in Senegal for six years, it was funny to me that when money came into the picture, even among the Muslims, they would look for a Christian to hold on to the money. Why? Because they had a reputation, a good standing. So that's marinating in his mind. Now we come to verse 5. And it says, Trust in the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. The God who has revealed Himself as being full of steadfast love and faithfulness. The God in whose law my teachings and my instructions have been rooted and grounded. Trust in Him. I think sometimes we do with this passage and we take verse 5 out of its context, we kind of use it as like a whipping stick for ourselves. A Christian whipping stick. I need to trust the Lord. I need to trust the Lord. I'm not trusting. I need to trust. All my heart. Come on. Pull myself up by my bootstraps. And, my boots don't... Yeah, anyway. And I'm going to trust Him. And we go out with that. I'm going to trust Him and trust God. Rah! Like a muscle head on steroids at Gold's Gym. I'm going to trust him. And, it, and then what happens? It fizzles out. Why? Because when someone has demanded that quantity of trust, we will never get there if we don't understand the object of that trust. Listen to me. Your level of trust in God this morning is directly connected to your understanding of who He is. You can scream and holler and kick and wail and put posters up all around your office and put post-it notes in your bathroom that say, trust God, trust God, trust God, but if you do not know Him, you will not trust Him. There's a direct connection. This father's not saying, trust a God. Just pick one. Trust Him. 
No, he's drawn all these illusions in the mind of his son that at this point, now he's taken a very specific name for God, Yahweh, and he's saying, trust that God, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, the one who's delivered us, the one who made a covenant with Abraham and has been faithful to keep it, trust that God because he's shown himself to be trustworthy. A.W. Tozer is quoted as saying, what comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I think that's right. What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. You cannot trust, friend, in a God that you do not know. You can't trust in something you don't know. Have you tried? Try. Think of something you don't know. You're like, what? Wait, what? <laughs> Try to trust in that thing you don't know. It doesn't work. You can't do it. You'll notice even, for instance, in verse 6 that it says, in all of your ways, what? Acknowledge Him. The idea there is an idea that we can understand. Acknowledge someone's presence. Now, there are a couple of ways to acknowledge someone's presence. I could acknowledge, like if I can't see them, I could acknowledge that someone's entered the room. But the moment I sense that someone's entered the room, what do I naturally do? Take out my phone and begin texting. No, I turn to see who they are. Why? So I can acknowledge them appropriately. If it's my son that's entered the room, I might say, hey buddy, what's going on? I don't know. Smack him in the head. Yeah, need that from time to time. I have never greeted my wife that way. And I don't recommend it. Why? Because it's not just some general vague acknowledgement. Oh, there's a person. We greet all people the same. No, it's an acknowledgement that connects with who the person is. My son, in all of your ways, acknowledge who? Some random God? Some small, domesticated God that's just like a fuzzy little teddy bear that's full of love and doesn't know justice and righteousness and is incapable of handling the difficulties of the world? No, trust God, the covenant-keeping God of Israel who's full of power that came down on that mountain and it shook and it quaked. Trust in Him. Acknowledge Him. He is Lord. Now that's got power to it. It makes a difference in my life. You'll notice in here that he talks about trusting in the Lord and then the second part of verse 5 and he says, and lean not on your own understanding. Now for some reason in my mind for so long I just kind of divorced that from the first part of the verse. Later on he talks about my own wisdom, your own wisdom. There is no more condemning knowledge that I have than my own creation of God. There's no understanding that screws me up more than the God that I create because I don't understand or haven't taken the time to, to study and to accept the God who's revealed Himself in Scripture. Do you, do you follow me? I can be screwed up in a lot of my understanding, but I will totally screw myself up with my lack of understanding of who God is. Now I know it's easy to say that man, I'm not a theologian though. You know, I'm, that's not me. I'm not a pastor. I'm not 
that's not me. But do you understand what this, this, this clear wisdom that the father is giving to his son here? He's saying, son, listen to me. You're going to trust someone or something. You're going to have a Lord. You're going to. And if you choose to trust the God of Scripture, you've got to know Him. Because if you've got gaps in that knowledge, guess what you're going to lean on for those, fill in those gaps? Your own understanding. You're going to lean on your own understanding. It's going to screw things up. Trust in the Lord. Know Him. Know Him. Beloved, we've got to be people that know the God who has revealed Himself. For some reason, at times we connect trust with, with blindness and like some kind of blind leap into nothingness. That's real trust. Now I get the idea of blindness, you know, a blind person's totally dependent upon the person that's guiding them. But trust like we're talking about here is not kind of some blind leap into nothingness. Here I come, God! If that's what God wanted, then He set Israel up for failure. Because He repeatedly reveals Himself. He repeatedly declares who He is. Not so that they'd run in with their eyes shut, kind of going, well, experience God. It'd be like a feeling in my belly button and I'll know He's there. No. He over and over again says, this is who I am. This is who I am. This is who I am. Look at me. Look at me. This is who I am. Let me tell you who I am. Let me help you experience who I am. Why? So they trust Him. We've got to be diligent students of the Word of God. If you don't know who God is, you cannot trust Him. You won't trust Him. But if you understand who God is, you trust Him. This is what I believe. I firmly believe this. If you and I beheld God as He is right now, right in this moment, in all of His glory and awesomeness, we would never trust anyone else or anything else the rest of our life. We would totally trust Him with all we are. It's not because something's lacking in Him. It's there's something lacking here. I'm not seeing Him correctly. Now, I want to add this to that thought. Another Tozer thought here. Sometimes we run the error of thinking because we read it here, in God's Word, that that means that it's in here. That because I said amen when the preacher preached it, or at least nodded my head or something, let him know I was alive, that it's in here. Because I underlined it in the systematic theology book, that means that it's in my heart. Because I raised my hand at that point in the song when it said that thing about God, that that means that it's inside of me. Knowledge of God isn't just something that we have in our heads. And when you look at the history of Israel, God never intended for Israel just to know about Him, but to experience Him. In their lives. Now we experience God in two key ways. One is the work of the Holy Spirit. He takes the Word of God and He illuminates it to us. And He burns it deep into our souls. Into, the, into that causal core of who we are. But the other is experience. As we've studied through the book of Proverbs with the young people. We've, we've entitled it Eat Honey. And the reason we've entitled it Eat Honey is because in Proverbs 24, verses 13 and 14, there's this great proverb where the father says to the son, Eat Honey. And I figured that would get a lot of the guys, so we went with that. Eat Honey! Right? He doesn't say study honey. He doesn't say do an internet search on honey. He doesn't say survey a bunch of people about honey. Take an opinion poll on honey. Ask people about honey. He says, Eat 
honey. Stick it in your mouth. Taste the sweetness of honey. Because in the moment that you taste it for yourself, all of the study that you could possibly do, the knowledge that you gain in that moment of experience will surpass all of that. Because you've tasted it for yourself. Now you're not needing, so you don't need someone else to tell you that honey is sweet. You know it's sweet. It's touched your own tongue. And then he says, so is wisdom to the soul. Not comprehended here. The book of Proverbs is in a book where you read it and you walk away and you go, whoa, I'm wise now. Study Proverbs. It's got to get in here. And it does that through experience. You see, trusting in the Lord is the ultimate goal. It's, the, it's the, trusting Him with all my heart. That's where I want to get to. But I start today. Did you notice that in the passage he talks about trusting and acknowledging Him in all your ways and your paths? Now what's the idea there? A way and a path. Well, obviously it's direction in life. And please don't be confused when he says that if we trust in the Lord with all our heart and we don't lean on our understanding and all our ways we acknowledge Him, He will make our paths straight. That what he's saying is if we trust Him with everything, everything will become smooth and easy in our life. Uh-uh. No, that's not the case. What he's saying is, is that if you trust in the Lord, those major questions of life will be answered for you. Those major questions of life that so many people are still asking and wondering about. Why am I here? How the heck did I get here? Why am I here and where in the world am I going? As I trust in the Lord and I understand who He is, those major questions, what we would call part of our worldview, those questions are filled in. And now I know who I am. I know where I came from. And by God's grace, I know where I'm going. And it doesn't mean that it tells me exactly what job to pick. Exactly what person to marry. Exactly what to do with the rest of my afternoon when the bald guy on stage stops screaming at me. It doesn't say all of that, but it helps me to fill in the major questions of my life. And the paths of life become straighter. But they're paths. They're not doorways. A doorway you open, you walk in. Boom, I'm there. It's done. Sometimes that's what we want to do with trusting the Lord. We want it to be a doorway. Open the door of trust, walk in, close behind me, boom, I'm in. Trusting God. Done. Never have to worry about it again. It's not how it works. How do you get down a path? You walk one step in front of the next, in front of the next. Over and over again, this image is used in Proverbs of paths and ways. Why? Because trusting in the Lord starts today with whatever it is, is the thing that you know you need to do. That thing that you haven't been trusting Him with, you start there and you trust Him today. You take that first step and then you take the next step and the next step, and the next step. And you continue trusting Him. And then over time, as you look back, you realize that your heart finds more joy and more rest and more trust in the Lord than it ever has. And it continues going and continues going until you go to meet Him and you see Him as He is and you trust Him with everything. Now, there are a couple of outflows of this and we'll, we'll do this quickly because we're running out of time and I didn't have Jackson read these passages this part of the passage but I think it's important because immediately the father draws two applications that I think are just 
heart-piercing. After verse 8, there's two immediate applications. Verse 9, honor the Lord with your what? Your wealth. Don't you love, you love the word of God? Honor the Lord with your wealth. Now let's not start there. Let's not start. We start somewhere else. If I trust the Lord, it's going to impact my wealth. Now, now here, here is the thing. Why do we love wealth so much? What's the allure of wealth? It's not just the stuff that I can buy. It's the, it's the lie that wealth gives me that with wealth I can control the circumstances of my life. Wealth tells me that if I have enough money and my car breaks down, I don't want that circumstance. I don't want my life over there. And if I have enough money, I just fix the car or I buy a new one and I line my circumstances back up where they're supposed to be again. Somebody gets sick in my family. Well, I've got a really big health insurance plan because i got a lot of money. I get the best doctors. I get it worked out. And I get all those circumstances, all those little duckling circumstances back in their little road, a waddle behind me where they're supposed to be. And it's a lie. How many extremely wealthy people have we seen live lives of misery because they can't keep the circumstances of their life where they want to? And even if they get them there, they can't keep them there. For someone who trusts in the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom, that core part of wisdom, the fear of the Lord, you begin trusting the Lord and you begin growing in wisdom. And you know what wisdom says? Wisdom has nothing to do with controlling your circumstances. Wisdom comes in and says you don't need to control your circumstances. God controls them and He's going to give you the skill to live well no matter what happens. So let what circumstances might come, come. Because I've got the skill to live well no matter what happens. I don't need wealth to kind of control everything. Now I can take my wealth and I can use it as a means to honor the Lord. Why? Because I don't, I don't have to cling to it anymore. I'm not so concerned that something's going to happen in my life and I'm not going to know what to do because I'm trusting in the Lord and I'm walking now in wisdom and it's giving me the skill to live life well no matter what circumstance I might face. The second application, discipline. Again, this, son, this father just goes right at the jugular. Discipline. Are you open to the discipline of the Lord? Verse 11 says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of His reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom He loves as a father, the son in whom He delights. There's a repeated refrain in the book of Proverbs that it's the fool who stands and says, I am wise. Listen to my wisdom. I don't need to hear from you. I know it all already. It's the wise man and the person on the path to wisdom who acknowledges their foolishness. And is quick to say, no, I need to learn. And I believe that I can learn even from people and circumstances that mm, I don't like so much. Are you open to the reproof of the Lord? In your study of the Word of God, when was the last time, and please hear this with love, when was the last time you studied the Word of God and didn't walk away beating your chest saying, I've got it right. 
but humbled before the word of God going, you know, I, I don't know that I, that I had that right. What about in this community? One of the ways that the Lord reproves us is through the community as is happening in this context in the book of Proverbs. A father with the son. Young people, are you accepting the loving reproof of the Lord through your parents? Parents, are you open to the reproof and correction that might come through this community? Living alongside one another? Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. He will make them straight. He asks for everything. And He can because of who He is. When we understand the God who's made this extraordinary demand through this Father to His Son we realize that it's not just an extraordinary demand, but it's an amazing opportunity to spend life trusting Him. May by the grace of God we do that. Take that next step today in our trust of Him. Let's pray together. Father, I thank You for Your Word that does lovingly come in and reprove and correct us. I thank You for the fact that in Your Word You reveal to us who you are so that we're not left to just try and blindly trust some God out there but you we know we can know who you are we can know who you've revealed yourself to be I pray father that today you would help us to take that next step in trusting you that we would get to that place where we're trusting you with all of our hearts and in no way leaning on our own understanding but in all of our ways we're acknowledging you and seeing you make our paths straight. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.